If you'd like, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi chapter 1, the first chapter of the book of Malachi, and uh, it's pretty easy to find if you go to the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, just go back one, Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament, you'll find it right there. So I want to take just a few minutes to walk through the first part of Malachi chapter 1 and uh, make some comment that we're going to have a time to pray, and then we'll move into our second of three segments this morning before we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, in Malachi, it's an interesting book of Scripture. It's uh, When you look in the Old Testament, the Old Testament's not written chronologically, so it doesn't start in Genesis and then move chronologically all the way through the end to Malachi. It, some of it kind of jumps around chronologically, but when you get to Malachi, it does make it a little easier because it is the last book of the Old Testament, but it's also kind of that last voice before the New Testament begins. And when Malachi would move off of the scene, there would be 400 years of silence, meaning no prophecy would be spoken in the land of Israel from Malachi for 400 years until John the Baptist would come onto the scene in the, uh, in the Gospels. And so he's significant. And kind of the historical setting here in the book of Malachi, it, it, we need to kind of know where it sits in history to understand why he's saying some of the things that he says, because it's a very hard-hitting book. Well, about a hundred years before Malachi, the people of God, the, Ju- the people of Judah specifically, we could say Israel, I guess, they had been released from captivity. They had been in captivity uh, because of their sin. And a hundred years before Malachi, they had been allowed to return to their homeland. Cyrus of Persia was the world leader at the time. He allowed 50,000 of those Jews to go back to their homeland again. And that was a hundred years before Malachi. Well, when they went back to their homeland, you may remember Ezra and Nehemiah, some of their some of their words and the books that bear their name. The wall around Jerusalem was rebuilt. The, uh, the temple was rebuilt. And the people of God had really seen reform come under Ezra and Nehemiah, spiritually, spiritual reform. Well, over time, they began to backslide and they began to drift away from God as we often are prone to do. Maybe for you in your own life, you can remember times when you were especially close to God and you walked really closely with Christ and, and he was most important in singing songs of praise were not hard and having your time in scripture was not difficult and praying didn't come difficult and, and you shared your faith and you did all kinds of different things. And maybe you remember those high times for you, but maybe you've been through, like a lot of us have, those seasons where you've drifted. And maybe that drift was overt. Maybe it was literally you just kind of walked away and you did your own thing and everybody could see it. Or maybe it was more on the inside. You still went through the motions outwardly and you still kind of, you know, did the church thing and you knew all the lingo and you still listened to some of the same songs. But on the inside, you were far from God. And the book of Malachi is written to people that are kind of in that same place. And so he writes this book, Malachi, this, this, this prophecy basically, is spoken to people, God's people, who had drifted badly. It was a time of economic hardship. There was a time of real spiritual decay. They were so far from the Lord. They were going through the motions in their, in their worship. They were still doing everything outwardly, but on the inside, they were so far from God, and God knew it. And this book, Malachi's words were an act of mercy and grace, really trying to draw God's people back to himself. And when we read here in this book, what we see is God's invitation. But God's invitation is going to come after some really hard words that required the people of God to take inventory. And sometimes that's what we need to do as well. And so let's jump in here. I'm not going to read all of the verses in Malachi, these four chapters, but right now for this segment, let's just take a moment and look in chapter one and let's begin in verse six. Malachi is writing here and he's quoting God. And here's what he says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised? But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? You know, the issue here for the people and for the priests there would have everything to do with their view of themselves and with their view of God. 
And you'll notice there, God's issue is not quantity. He's not saying, oh, you need to bring me more sacrifices. You need to bring me more because I'm worthy of more. God's not saying that here, even though he is worthy of more. What he's dealing with here is not quantity. He's dealing with quality, right? He's dealing with the quality of the sacrifice. He's saying to the priest, you're presenting to me sacrifices that are less than what I have prescribed. You're bringing me animals for sacrifice that are not, that are not reflective of the God that I am. And he took issue with this. He took issue specifically with the priest. And, and the picture would be kind of like, you know, later this week, you're going to travel for Thanksgiving, right? And you're going to, some of you at least, or you may have people to your family, uh, you know, to your home, or you're going to lay out kind of a feast, whatever that looks like for you for Thanksgiving. Imagine traveling, uh, you know, four or five states away and you drive all night, Wednesday night to get there for Thanksgiving. And, and you walk in and you see your family and all these people in the room. And when you go up to the table, they bring out leftovers from like tomorrow, you know, from Monday, three days before and they you know it's just old looking tomatoes and old looking meat whatever kind of meat it is and it's just it's just leftovers like three or four days old and you'd be thinking we drove all night for this right you wouldn't say anything I know you wouldn't but you'd be thinking is this this is this is what we get I mean this this is what we're what we're given for Thanksgiving and you kind of think you know what I I expected more it's kind of like that here in Malachi 1 you know God deserved better than what he was getting. He, he deserved it because he's king. He deserved it because he's creator. He deserved it because he was their God specifically. You move on a little bit further in this passage. Look down to verse 13. He says, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. I mean, it's such, such, a, such a testimony of where their hearts were as they render offerings to God and sacrifices to God and their heart's mentality was, you know what, this is just wearing us out. Just totally missing the the intent behind offering a sacrifice to God. He says, you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery, what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering, should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? You know, it causes us to take a step back doesn't it? And really think through what we bring to God and what we call offering, what we call worship. Romans 12 verse 1, it says to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And we don't bring offerings as they did in the Old Testament, thankfully, right? Jesus became our sacrifice. But what he calls us to is to bring ourselves to him. And, and, and the issue there is quality. How much of God, how much of us does God really truly have? How much of ourselves are we genuinely, authentically giving to the Lord? Look down in verse, or back up again, verse 9. Malachi, we'll close out with this passage here in chapter 1. He says, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, it had come to such a place to where there was such a lack of authenticity in their worship. God said, I wish there was just one of you that would just close the gates and shut it down. I mean, imagine if that's what it came to for a church. If God were to say, you know what, you are so far from me and you're just going through the motions, this so badly misses what worship is so supposed to be, why don't you just turn off the lights, close the doors, lock them, and go home? Because it's better than what you're doing. That, that's, that's how badly it had become. And it had everything to do, not with the, the production, it had everything to do with the heart. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's take a moment to pray according to what Malachi shares here in chapter 1. Maybe you can start and just, just pray, Lord, would you search my heart? God, would you shine your light on those things in my heart that don't belong? 
maybe pray for God to help you to take inventory of where you are today as it relates to worship. Is your worship authentic? Is it a privilege or is it drudgery? Is your walk with God out of a sense of duty, legalism, because you're supposed to? Or is it out of a sense of love, gratitude, because you get to walk with Him? Ask God to rekindle in you if that if that fire has died down, rekindle in you a, a sense of passion again for Him, for worship, for obedience. That you would surrender yourself, Christian, as a living sacrifice, that we would do that, holy and pleasing to the Lord, inside and out, the way we live and why we live the way we do. Lord, many times in our lives, we find ourselves so reflective of the people of Israel in Malachi's day. We find ourselves at a place, Lord, where our hearts are misaligned. We know how to go through the motions. For some of us, we've been in church for years, decades. And God, we know the lingo and we know the words to the songs And we know what to say and what to do so that the outward appearance appears as though nothing is out of place. But God, sometimes on the inside, we can be so far from you. Sometimes it's because of sin, Lord, we've just chosen something that we know you would not allow. And we've allowed it to take more more weight in our lives than you. Sometimes it's because the hardships of this world just mount up, Lord. Sometimes it's because a year like this can just be so hard that we begin to feel the weight of it and the grind of it, and we become weary in that sense, and our heart begins to dry, just to dry up on the vine. But God, regardless of the reason, there's no excuse when we don't offer you our best because you're worthy. And you are God, and you are good, and you are our Savior. And today we acknowledge that. And Lord, as we sing throughout this service, Lord, I pray that it's words of authenticity. And as we look in your word, that you would continue to bring it to light. And God, we thank you that all of this ends on such a high note because of your great love for us. Bless this time as we worship again in Jesus' name. Stand with me again if you would. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring or something that's of worth that will bless your heart I'll bring you more I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you oh it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for being I've made it when it's all about you Oh, it's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, oh, no 
express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, Lord, all I have is yours. Every single breath, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. Oh, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you. Oh, it's all about you, Jesus. Oh, it's all about you. more than a song will bring you more than a song Jesus I'm coming back let's sing it I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you oh it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for the when it's all about you oh it's all about you Jesus I'm coming back to the heart of worship cause it's all about you oh it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for the thing I've made it when it's all about you Oh, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In the second chapter of Malachi, Malachi turns, not completely turns his attention just to the priests, but we see him begin to say a word to the priests in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. And he begins to speak. If we move down just a little bit further uh, in chapter 2, we see in verse 8 that uh, he begins to have some strong words. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, but as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. He has a list of things that related to the priests there that oversaw spiritual worship. They, the priests in the Old Testament context were responsible to examine the animals that were brought for sacrifice. That was part of their specific responsibility. But they were also to, uh, responsible to guard the worship from defilement to some degree. And, uh, and Malachi calls them out because they had really abdicated. They had laid aside that responsibility, and they were not honoring God's name. They were, they were not reverencing Him. Even in their instruction, Malachi says they were leading the people ultimately astray, and their leadership was bringing about less spiritual leadership, you know, less of a spiritual uh, maturity rather than a more spiritual maturity amongst the people. And Malachi had some very strong words for them. He went, went straight to the issue, and he dealt with how they were not keeping God's law. And he held them accountable. He called them to task. Now, we don't have priests among us today. This is an Old Testament book. In the New Testament, in the, in the church, you don't really see priests necessarily that are dealt with, except in the Jewish synagogue, perhaps. But in a Christian context, you'll have pastors and you'll have leaders 
But in a lot of ways, whether a pastor or not, you may be responsible for spiritual leadership in the lives of other people as well. But the picture here is the need to reverence God in our worship, to honor God in our worship, to lead people closer to Jesus, right? And to be sure that we do that in a way that puts Christ on display, that holds him out for who he is, that, that, that we don't confuse people about who the Lord is, but rather we help to enhance their understanding with clarity of who the person of Jesus is, what it means to worship God and to honor God. Look at what he says in verse 10 there in chapter 2. He moves on and he says, speaking now to the people, not just to the priests, do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. You know, the the picture there is a picture of God's people who were called to be separate. They were called out. In the New Testament, the word for church is a Greek word, ekklesia. It means the called out ones. And when you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the picture of God's people. It's this picture that we are called out to be separate. Yes, we're sent into the world as lights for the sake of the gospel. We're sent into the world as missionaries, but we're also called out of the world, John 17, to live separately, to live in a way that is distinctly different than this world. And it seems as though this is kind of where Malachi is going, 400 years before the New Testament. But he says to the people, you have mingled your relationship with God in your marriage to those who are of pagan nations who worship false gods. And it, 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 this has nothing to do with the issue of, of marriages depending on race. This has everything to do with marriages depending on, on, on a spiritual emphasis. And what happened historically for Israel was when they married the nations, their hearts were drawn away from God. It's what happened to Solomon, one of their greatest kings. And Malachi is dealing with this. It's almost this picture that you've set aside your relationship with God and you've exchanged him for something that is false. It's another picture of this spiritual adultery, you could call it. Look down in verse... Uh, look down in verse, uh, verse 14. We don't have this on the slide, but look at what it says in verse 14. He says, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you've dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He's going to deal there in, um, in his book with the issue of, of divorce and how even amongst the Jewish people in, their, in the marriages that they did have, they were just treating their, their, their wives as, as objects, and they weren't true to their marriages. And when they were tired of their marriage, they just kicked them to the curb. And God is going to deal with this. Why? Because it's, it was not just a marriage issue, it was a spiritual issue. If you get down a little bit further, look down to verse 17. In chapter 2, he says, You've wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? They had become a God unto themselves. It had become so bad that the people were even saying that God was perfectly fine condoning evil. Or the people who do it, right? And yes, he loves everyone. But evil is always evil in the sight of God. You know, for us, as we look in chapter 2, it reminds us of the standard, right? That God is holy and never does he lay aside his holiness. That God is perfect and that he calls us to live in a way that reflects him. He doesn't call us to mix our relationship with him, with other things, with the things of the world. We are to be distinctly different. Whether we are a pastor, a leader, or part of the body of Christ, we are to be distinctly different in the way we treat people, in the way we treat God, and when we bring to him our lives as a sacrifice. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed as we pray in this middle segment in the book of Malachi, maybe one of the things that you can pray is for God to mold in you a heart that is true to him. 
a heart that is true to his truth. That he would shape you into one whose life reflects him accurately to a world that looks in from the outside. That you could pray, Lord, help me to live in such a way to where I am truly wholeheartedly devoted to you. That the things of this world would not captivate me, that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh would not capture my heart, that I would be true to you as a follower of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for those times when you speak into our hearts and you show us the things that are misaligned. Lord, you do that not because you're against us, but because you're for us. And you know where a misaligned heart will lead. You know where it ends up whenever our hearts chase after the things of the world, whenever we become a God unto ourselves. You know where that ends up. And we have a whole book called the Bible that shows us where it ends up when people become God for themselves. And Lord, you love us so much that you're willing to confront us in our sin and in our wandering so that we can lay those things aside and come back to you wholeheartedly. And Lord, here Malachi speaks to the, to the priests, the spiritual leaders of your people, and he speaks to the people again, and across the board, they had all wandered so far from you. And so God, help us to be quick to confess to you our sin. Help us to be quick to repent and help us to be quick to walk with you fully surrendered in a way that honors you for who you are. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand with me again if you would. You know, God reconciled everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. As we prepare our hearts for communion coming up, let's sing this hymn together. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream. Flows from Calvary's mountain. the cross near the cross a trembling soul love and mercy found me there the bright and morning star shed its beams around me in the cross in the cross be my glory ever till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river near the cross O Lamb of cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me, help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me, oh, near the cross I'll walk and wait hoping trusting ever till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river in the cross in the cross be my glory Till my rapture
tortured soul shall find rest beyond the river rest beyond the to see my sin upon that cross I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross oh I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon more time. Oh, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Oh, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Oh, you're together lovely all together worthy all together wonderful to me oh sing here i am to worship here i am to bow down here i am to say that you're my god oh you're all together lovely all together worthy Altogether wonderful to me. I'll never know, and I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Here I am. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Oh, you're altogether lovely altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Amen. Please be seated. The last two chapters of Malachi uh, begin in much the same way as chapters 1 and 2, but they end on a much different note. In chapter 3, Malachi uh, continues with, um, with his strong words to the people of Israel. Chapter 3, look down in verse 8. He says, will a man rob God? He's, he's, uh, he's saying to the people, yet you are robbing me, quoting God, but you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? He goes to the issue of giving, and in the Old Testament context and in the New Testament context, the giving was an important component of their worship. And here it's interesting the terminology that Malachi uses, or rather that God uses, Malachi is just quoting him, that when he talks about the people withholding their tithes and offerings, he called it robbery, and, and, and he, he carried strong words associated with that. He even would go on, you don't have this on the overhead, but in verse 9 he says, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You know, I think we, we need to sometimes be reminded that God's desire is to bless us. That's what he wants. 
And when we go through these seasons where God may have to have harsh words, so to speak, with us, right? Not un, they're not unloving when He has to, when He convict, convicts us of sin. It's because He loves us. It's because He's for us. It's because He wants the best for us and wants to bless us. Here in this passage of Scripture, if you look down a little bit for, uh, further in verse 14, he's, He uh, He again quotes the Lord. He says, you've said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that you have kept this charge that we've walked in mourning before the Lord our host? The people had considered their very service to God as being worthless, as being worth nothing, like it was a waste of time. You know, if you were to ask them, so all the service of your life, has it been worth it? They would say, you know, it's just, it's all in vain. I mean, it just, it was just a worthless item to them. That's how far they had slidden from God, that, that any act of service that they could render to the Lord, they would call it just vanity. It's just vain to serve the Lord. In verse 16, it's interesting because we see the response of the people. The response of the people comes to an open invitation that God would offer to them back in verse 7. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Look at what the response was in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and he heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You know, this was a beautiful invitation. You know, some of you have maybe been invited to certain things recently. Maybe you've been invited to someone's home for... Thanksgiving or Friendsgiving, right? It's kind of become popular. Maybe you've been invited to a wedding celebration or a party or what a, some other event. You know, anytime we're invited to something, it's really, really interesting because what that shows is that if you've been invited, that the person who extended the invitation counts you as a person who's valuable to them. And what it also communicates in that little invitation is not just that you are valuable to that person, but that they want to include you in whatever it is that's important to them. They want you to be a part of their life for that specific moment. And when God offers to us an invitation, it is much the same. It is him inviting us into who he is, into a deeper walk, inviting him into his work in this world, inviting us to know him and to fellowship with him and to walk with him. That's what God invites us to. And here he says to his people, if you just return to me, I will return to you, he says. I mean, a beautiful invitation for those of us who have often wandered away from him, who have often seen our hearts drift away from closeness to him. God says, return to me. Look in chapter four. He begins to close out this, uh, this book, chapter four, verse one. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be a day when God will judge the, the injustices of this world, when God will, will bring judgment to those who have rejected him as Savior. But look at what he says in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall it's a picture of hope God often gets a bad rap in the Old Testament for being a God of judgment everything's judgment in the Old Testament it's like God's angry he's always judging always judging always judging that's not necessarily the truth <laughs> what we see in virtually every single prophet Malachi included is that where God brings conviction to his people and he judges injustice and evil he also brings hope through a relationship with Jesus what a beautiful picture that for Malachi the day would yet come when the son of righteousness would rise 
I know there it's a connotation of the sun, S-U-N, but you can't help but see how it looks ahead 400 years to the sun, S-O-N, who would come and shine like a bright light in the midst of a dark world. You can see after Malachi's voice would grow silent 400 years without a prophetic voice in Israel, you can imagine the scene when finally Jesus showed up. And he brought grace and he brought mercy and he brought forgiveness and he brought hope. And to the woman at the well who had looked everywhere in this world, he said, I'm the one you've been looking for. And to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 with all of her accusers standing around, he said, I forgive you. And time after time after time, Jesus showed himself as the son of righteousness who never lowered the standard that God expects of us, but he was willing to pay for our sin and give us his righteousness so that we can meet that standard ourselves. You know, as we close out with this final time of prayer before we celebrate the Lord's Supper with heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe just take a moment if you're a follower of Christ this morning to just pray and thank him, to thank him for hope. Just tell him right now where you sit. Thank him for the hope that he's given to you in your life. Thank him for his forgiveness. Thank you for his grace and his mercy. Thank you that he calls you his child. And that all of that was only possible at the greatest of costs that was embraced by his son Jesus who died so that we could have all of that for ourselves it's what makes our worship worth it it's what makes our service worth every ounce of effort thank God for the privilege today of being in his family of serving on his mission and thank him for your future for the home that he has waiting. God, I think Malachi has been almost the perfect backdrop today for the Lord's Supper because it reminds us, Lord, that you don't take sin lightly. It reminds us that as your followers that we are called out from this world to live distinctly differently. It doesn't lower the bar. It reminds us of our high calling in Christ Jesus. It's this book that reminds us that we should treat people in a way that reflects you, that we should live in a way that honors you, that that every part of our lives should put you on display. And it points us, Lord, to the person of Christ who gave himself ultimately so that we could have a relationship with you. So today, God, we thank you. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the grace and the forgiveness that you give us through Christ as we celebrate his body and his blood given and shed for us today. Thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you like this. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll go ahead and move into our celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning. It's going to be a little differently, and I celebrate a little differently. I'll share that in just a moment. But the Lord's Supper would be that picture that we see in the New Testament. You don't see the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament. The closest we come to it is a celebration called Passover. And in the Old Testament, it would be God's people that would celebrate Passover. It commemorated when they crossed the Red Sea. God had miraculously parted the Red Sea in Moses' day. They passed over, and the enemy pursued them and was swallowed up in the flood that came behind them. And, uh, and ultimately, it was God leading his people from slavery into freedom and ultimately into the promised land. Well, in the New Testament, we transition. When Jesus would celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples, it was that Passover, but he kind of reinstituted something brand new that we call the Lord's Supper. And in this, there would be bread that would be taken, that Jesus would take, that would represent his body, and there would be the cup for us, it's juice, that would represent his blood, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. 
that reminds us that our salvation is not rooted in our goodness or our church membership or any of those other things. It's rooted in the fact that he called us to himself, that he died and rose to pay for our sin. And when we repent and give our lives to Jesus, that he takes our lives and he, re, he, he, he gives us a brand new heart and, and he, he redeems us and he saves us forever. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of this. And so as we take over this morning, this is a time for believers, right? It's, it's the way the Bible describes it, that if you've given your heart to Christ today, we welcome you and we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. We've got numerous people online today who are in our online crowd who have not yet returned because of the health issues that we face in our day, but they're celebrating with us today. They've got their bread, they've got their juice, and they're celebrating together. It's not the perfect biblical picture because it's the church gathered, but under these circumstances, how fitting that we collectively can celebrate the Lord's Supper together, whether online or together in this place. And so I'd like to ask our deacons this morning that are helping with this uh, celebration and this service, if you would, just to slip out and come forward. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in just a moment, and then I'll explain how we'll take the Lord's Supper today. It's going to be a little different, <laughs> a little unconventional in these days, but uh, our first service made it through it. I think we can too, so... If you've never given your life to Jesus, man, our greatest desire is that even right where you sit right now, that you would confess your sin to Christ, invite him to forgive you and invite him to save you and take over your life and he'll do it. It's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 who's writing to the church in Corinth. There's a real church just like this one. And he makes mention of the elements of the Lord's Supper. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, as we take the Lord's Supper, we do so biblically. We're partnering with churches not only around the world just like us, but we're partnering with churches trailing all the way back 2,000 years that have taken the same celebration all under the same common denominator of faith in the person of Jesus. And so in just a moment, we're going to distribute uh, the Lord's Supper. These six deacons will help to do that. All six of them are wearing masks, and so they are going to hand it out. We're not going to pass the plates, but uh, they won't have to reach very far, and it won't take very long. And so I just invite you to take one of these. It's it's, um, it's just a prepackaged Lord's Supper, essentially, and um, these things have existed for about 20 years, I guess, or longer. I mentioned that last week, and somebody said it sounded like we were about to take something that's been in here for 20 years. That's not the case. Uh, there is an expiration date, and this one has not passed, So, um, but these aren't brand new. We've just never used them before. So as you can tell, it's shaped about like a... Uh, uh, about like a coffee creamer that you pour into your coffee. Uh, when, you, when you take it, just kind of hold tight. I'll give you some instructions on how to open it. But what you'll basically find is that there are two cellophane toppings to it. And the, I've never said all these things in the Lord's Supper before, so this is a first for all of us, I guess. But the, the first one is going to be, uh, you'll peel it back when I ask you to, and it'll kind of open the bread for you. And then after we take the bread together, you'll do the same again, and it'll open up the juice, and we'll take that together as well. So uh, let me ask our deacons, if they could at this time, to go ahead and take the, uh, these containers and just begin to hand them out, and then I'll say a prayer again in just a moment.
if you would go ahead and take the container if you would and on the very top just be sure to peel that very top piece the new sounds of the Lord's Supper right on the very top there you should have the little piece of bread that's there Paul would quote Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He would say, speaking of the bread, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then you can take your cup again, if you would. There's another layer there. You can just peel that part back. Just be careful with it. Paul would also quote Jesus in verse 25 in 1 Corinthians 11, speaking of the cup. He would say, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we thank you again for this simple celebration. Lord, it is, um, it is without flash and... It's just the simplicity of it almost makes it even more meaningful, God, because it reminds us of the simplicity of our own salvation, God, that we don't have to dream up uh, great and mighty acts of service to try to earn your favor or your attention. Lord, there is not enough good in this world that we could do to undo even one sin that we've ever committed in your sight because of your holiness. But Lord, you don't call us to a complex salvation. You don't call us to a complicated salvation. You call us to just simply turn from the sin that we're probably already tired of at some point in our lives. And you call us to call in the name of Jesus who's already paid that sin for us and to trust him and to trust him alone and what he did on the cross and through the, through the resurrection. And you call us to cry out to him and surrender and when we do that, laying aside our sins, surrendering our lives to Christ and trusting in Him alone, Lord, that's when you save us. That's when we become part of your family. That's when we are forgiven and your grace is made uh, complete and full in our lives. And so, God, what a simple recognition fitting for the simple offer of sacrifice and salvation that you offer to us. Thank you that we can take of this together today. And we praise you for what you've done in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.